0: Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at seven p.m. at Calvary Chapel East, Anaheim. Go ahead and get started. Um, tonight's going to be a little bit different than the normal kind of format that we use. Instead of breaking off into groups first and having a discussion time and then coming back for the word, we're going to start with the message and then. Uh, He's going to come up, we'll have a little bit of worship, and then we'll finish with a a time of prayer. So that's kind of the structure for tonight. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read our our psalm. Tonight we're going to be in Psalm number 19. Tonight's topic is creation, Psalm 19. The first half of it is speaking about God's creation. The second half is speaking about His Word. Uh, both of them are forms of revelation. We have his uh, creation, which reveals his nature, reveals his power, his wisdom, his attributes. And then his word reveals it in a more specific way. We would uh, be lost in knowing uh, details about who God was or is without his word. So Psalm 19 covers both forms of God's revelation. In verse 1, it says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands, day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is the bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other ends of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, even much more than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is one. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. We often hear things like the Bible's this old, antiquated religious book, and, and it's been debunked by scientific discovery. Our culture seems to think that choosing science over the Bible is like the sophisticated thing to do. I often hear things like, "Yeah, we haven't been brainwashed by your little book written by your sky daddy, of your invisible sky daddy, and things like that." People mocking people that read the Bible. You know, I, I get that on social media all the time, and it's almost like they're they're speaking from a level of arrogance and pride, and it's like uh, they feel like they're more sophisticated that they've Come up with some new way of thinking that's better than what God has given us and God has revealed to us, and, and and a lot of that I think is because they think that science and the Bible, modern science, are in contradictory contradiction or conflict with each other. Merriam-Webster's diction, definition of science is a knowledge or a system of knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws as obtained and tested through scientific method. In other words, true science should affirm the accounts of the Bible because God has created those natural laws and is using them to bring about his plan in the universe. Science should be the way that we discover see the amazing things and works that God has done or is doing. Science should reveal God in his work, not be in opposition to it. But both creation is a kind of an observed science and the Bible are revelations, revelations of God. And because God isn't going to contradict himself, these two should go together hand in hand. That's the reality when we think about science and the Bible. is They should confirm and complement one another. The battle of science and the Bible really comes to an apex When we start talking about the account of creation, the Bible and modern science seem to be opposed to one another, but I'm going to argue that they're not. I believe that fallen man desperately wants to live autonomously from God, and so he attacks the foundation of God's existence. He attacks God's creation, because if he could prove that God didn't create the earth, then fallen man doesn't need to (laughs) obey God's righteous standards. Man could Live however he wants he could be in autonomy paul mentions this very thing in romans chapter 1 and starting in verse 18 he says for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all only godliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about god is evident within them for god made it evident to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes his eternal power and did not by nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they're without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The sad thing is, even in the church, it's becoming more and more rare for people to hold the literal biblical account of creation. Even biblical scholars, uh, some of them that are super well known, even a guy William Lane Craig uh, postulates that Genesis one through eleven is mystical and it's not a historical account of creation. I believe that there's a few reasons that scholars do this. Number one, I I think they do this because they want to appear scholarly. They don't want to appear unintelligent to the scientific or scholarly community. I also believe this trend comes out of a more liberal approach to the scriptures that wants to try to get away from the consequences of Genesis 1 through 11, like original sin and our depraved condition that we inherit from original sin. The fact that the flood, which reminds us that God has judged the world and he will judge it again, that he judges sin. So even for those in the church Postulating a non-literal view of Genesis one through eleven is because they don't like the implications that Genesis one through eleven have for the people of God. But we have very good reason to believe that these chapters are historical; that it's a narrative. We we, we could believe that these uh, the events of creation played out exactly the way that Genesis one. Through 11 records it. The first is the form of those chapters is a historical narrative. In chapters 5 and 11, we have two different genealogies in these chapters. That doesn't fit with some kind of mystical or or poetic writing. Genealogies fit with a historical narrative. It's giving real accounts of real people. In chapter 2, we have four different rivers in Eden. Two of them are are, are, are rivers that we know today, the Tigris and the Euphrates. These are real rivers. So these chapters, they read like a historical narrative section of Scripture. And so we should interpret them as such. Second, the, the New Testament speaks of these accounts in Genesis 1 through 11 as being historical fact. Jesus says things like uh, the end times, it, it'll be like in the days of Noah. Presupposing that the days of Noah were real days, real historical events. He says, In the beginning, God created a male and female. They created them in the image of God. He, he's affirming the creation account of man and woman. He talks in Luke chapter 11, verse 51, about the blood of Abel, speaking of King killing Abel as a historic event. Paul talks about Adam and the fall in Romans chapter 5, where he's contrasting our two federal heads. He's contrasting Adam and who all die in Christ, in whom all are made alive. But that Adam, all of us being dead in Adam, presupposes that Adam really did eat of the forbidden fruit and the fall came about and brought about original sin and death and the consequences of life. Peter mentions the flood in First Peter chapter 3. In Luke's gospel, the genealogy of Jesus contains 20 people that are listed in the genealogy, genealogies found in chapters 5 and 11 of Genesis. These are people that are in the literal line, the bloodline of Christ. It's the, the Messiah came out of. That doesn't sound like mythological writing. At least 25 passages in the New Testament explicitly uh, refer to content from Genesis 1 through 11. So there's absolutely no reason to take these, con- uh, these texts, these chapters of Genesis as anything but historical narrative. Last week we talked about God's divine decrees, how God uh, decreed or, or ordained everything that's going to come to pass. right? And, and he did that in, in one instance, and then they're being played out the time and space that he created we talked about that well god's creation the the creation account is an example of these decrees the bible actually begins with god giving decrees god said or decreed let there be light and there was light god then decreed a firmament that and then divided the waters above and below that firmament, calling the space above heaven On day three, God decrees that the waters below should be separated or divided, and thus he creates the distinction between land and water. On day four, God decrees that there would be stars in the heaven, the the area above that firmament. On day five, he decreed that there would be birds in the air and fish in the seas. And then on day six, he decrees that there would be land animals. And in the apex of his creation, us humans who he created, in his image. And then finally, on day seven, he decrees a rest. He decrees a Sabbath rest for everybody. So creation needs to be seen as an outworking of God's decorative power. In fact, one of the ways God is distinguished from the false gods in the Bible is that he's the maker of the heavens and earth. We read that all over. The maker of the heavens and the earth. The maker of the heavens and the earth. In Psalm 96, 5, it says, For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Isaiah 37, 16, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Nehemiah 9, 6, You alone are the Lord have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that are in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. Finally, John 1.3, one that we know, all things came into being through him, through Christ. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So the Bible is very clear that God created the universe. We don't have time tonight to explore all that it entails and implies, but I do want to take a look at a few things that the framers of the Westminster Confession thought were important for us Christians to believe and confess regarding God's creation. Uh, Chapter four of the Confession where we are this week, uh, is broken into two paragraphs. The first one having to do with the creation in general, and the second one having to do specifically with the creation of human beings. So uh, for letter A, fill in God's creation of the world. Fill in the word world. That's what we're going to look at. We're first going to look at God's creation in general. We already established that God created the world from the scriptures. There's dozens of verses to convey this truth throughout the Bible. The very first Bible the verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? We, we, we can't make it one sentence in the Bible without facing this reality that everything that's created was created by God. So for number one, fill in self-existent or eternal. The world is not self-existent or eternal. Again, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, the world can't be eternal because it was created. It it, it came into being. There was a time before it existed. That means it's not eternal. The Bible also says that the world isn't self-existent. It doesn't come into being by itself. It didn't somehow magically evolve into what it is. No, God created it. Right? So, so the, Bible, the Bible says that the world, the creation, it, it's not eternal. There's a, a time when it specifically began, and and, and it can't exist outside of itself. It, it, it needs something giving it life, which is God. For number two, fill in the words true God. The world derives existence from the true God. If Yahweh is the sole being that existed before the creation of the earth, and he's the one responsible for its coming into being, then Yahweh is the true God, and he deserves our allegiance. If Yahweh could speak the world into existence and is in control of everything that's going on, he's by definition God. He's the one thing that isn't created. He is the one thing that's not a created being, and therefore all created beings owe allegiance to Yahweh. He's the one true God. So so creation tells us that God is God because God is separate. He's distinct from creation. He's the one thing that isn't like his creation. For number three on the word nothing. God made all things out of nothing. You know, God's creative work, it's not like the creative work of humans. Humans could be extremely creative. Uh, That's one of the ways, actually, that I I believe that we're created in God's image, that we reflect God through our creativity. You know, I I used to love watching this show called Locked Up. Are you guys familiar with that? It's the show, it's like a reality show where they go and they visit prisons, and they go into these prisons, and, interview prisoners and kind of show what daily life is like in certain prisons. Can they get the prisoner's perspective, the guard's perspective, and all of that. And I I used to find these shows just absolutely fascinating. One of the things that I was especially just fascinated by was the level of creativity that some of these prisoners show. I remember I was watching one and, and this one prisoner Actually, made a full blown electric guitar and, and working amp and all of that out of model cars. He had people send up model cars and bigger model cars, and he <coughs> took those and turned it into an, a working <laughs> electric guitar and amp. He had this full band. They made all of their instruments out of these model cars. It, w- it was fascinating. You know, Michelangelo was a great artist. He he sculpted some of the greatest sculptures that this world has ever seen, one of them being the the David. I'm sure you guys are familiar with that sculpture. However, Michelangelo never said that he created the sculpture or the statue. He said he simply released it from its stone prison. He, He released the stone around it to reveal the beauty that was already there. See, whether it's Michelangelo creating the David or a prisoner creating an electric guitar, their creations differ from that of God's because God didn't start with any prior material like they did. God created it out of nothing. He created it ex nihilo, theologians say. He he took nothing and and turned it into something. He spoke it into existence. Nobody else could do that except for God. Nobody else could take nothing and turn it into something, but God can speak things into existence. And the fact that God created ex nihilo, or out of nothing, it kind of disproves the Big Bang Theory. See, the the Big Bang Theory says that there was this kind of maverick molecule, or atom, that was kind of floating around in space, and then it split in two, and then somehow these Two atoms run into each other, creating this powerful explosion, which out of the creation of the world came. And everything just kind of evolved from there. But where did that atom come from? Science says that every action must have a cause. What was the cause of this atom? It just didn't create itself. Now, if we were to say that God created that atom and then split it and used it, create the universe, that might work, but but that's not what science says. Scientists are saying, no, there just happened to be this molecule that turned into everything. But God is the only eternal self-existent being, and everything else comes from his creative decrees or, or divine fiat. See, God's the sovereign. And he gives decrees. He gives fiat. And one of those is, is creation. He demands things to come into existence, and they do. We get kind of a picture of this in the life of Jesus. Right? Remember Jesus, He, in the beginning of his ministry, he shows up at this wedding. And they ran out of wine halfway through the wedding. And so what does he tell his disciples to do? They, they take these water pots used for washing and fill them with water. And they do. And, and, and he creates it. He turns it into wine. He, he creates wine out of nothing. He 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 takes a, a little boy's lunch and, and multiplies it. He he could create more food out of it. We see through the life of Jesus that, that he could create things. He could bring things out of nothing. He could take a guy who's been dead for four days and stinketh, and bring life to him by his word. My simple Lazarus come forth. God has extreme power. He could speak things into existence. Not only did he create out nothing, but he spoke creation into his ex- existence. It was his word that has creative power. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers waters of the sea together as a heap, he lays up the deeps and storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So not only does he create out of nothing, use word, but the Bible says that he did it in a literal six hour periods. God created the entire universe in six literal days. You know, some people say the earth is hundreds of millions of years old. They say we have an older other people say that the earth is young, probably not even ten thousand years old. You know, in the seventeenth century there was this uh, bishop named James Usher and he went and he examined some of the genealogies in the Bible, looking at you know Genesis chapter 5, Genesis 11, some of the other genealogies in the Old Testament. He did some calculations and I'm probably guessing some speculations too. But he concluded that the world was created in 404 B.C. He even nailed it down to the, the month, the week, the day, and the time that God started his creation. I don't know how he did that but (laughs) he says that he did And, and, and and that's where this idea of this young earth came from now i think it's important that we distinguish between what the inspired text of scripture says and what some bishop wrote about the scriptures we're under no obligation to adhere to what this bishop said some couple hundred years ago but there's a pretty huge difference between 6,000 years old and being 13.8 billion years old, which is what science is saying today. (laughs) And this discrepancy is because some of our modern sciences uh, use methods for dating things that uh, render this discrepancy. You know, this dating science, it it can't seem to get a, a, a consistent date, I might add. It seems like every time they uh, find a fossil and they date it, it, it just, the earth gets older and older and older. So to now we're you know, 13.8 billion years old. Do any of you guys remember how old the earth was when you were in school? I'm willing to bet it wasn't 13.8 billion years. right, Or, or anywhere close to that, for that matter. You see, that's how inconsistent this method is. Part of it is, is because with carbon fiber dating, it's only accurate to a few thousand years old. After that, it it just starts getting inaccurate and inconsistent. But scientists have four main theories that they use to try to explain the age of the Earth. And, And all but one of them, they're used to explain an older, why we have an older, how the Earth could be so old when you know, the biblical record shows that it's only 6,000 years old. The first one is what's called the Gap Theory. This theory was made popular by the Schofield Reference Bible, released in 1909. Any of you guys heard of the Schofield Bible? Maybe you have a Schofield Bible. Schofield was this scholar, and he came up with this, this reference system for a Bible, and it was one of the first study Bibles ever produced. So it was wildly popular. It was uh, produced and, and um, distributed throughout the United States and uh, entire generations. That was like the main Bible, the Bible everybody used. And and so the, the ideas that were in it, uh, the study notes and things like that, uh, became almost gospel truth. People started taking it and hey, that's what it is, that's what the Bible says. But the Schofield Bible begins like this. In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right on up to that. Verse 2. He says, The earth became formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Well, there's a problem there. Every other Bible says this. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Did you guys catch the difference? The earth was formless and void. It didn't become formless and void. That was the way that it was in the beginning stages of creation. We have this as yet unordered basic structure of the universe, darkness and emptiness. That was how God started his creation. He didn't create it and then there was some fall, and then it became that way. And in verse 2, it says, The Spirit hovers over the face of the waters. Verse 3, God says, Let there be light, and so forth. You see, these days after that are, are God speaking and bringing structure into this formlessness and void. Not him recreating. Or, or, uh, the word for was in verse 2 is the Hebrew word hayah you guys say that? Hayah. It's a hard word to remember, right? Hayah. Well, Hayah means to be in almost every instance. There's a few instances where Hayah can be translated to become, but those are special circumstances and they aren't present in this Hebrew text. There's no justification for translating Hayah as become in that instance. It's really a matter of eisegesis. You see, eisegesis is when you take an idea, this presupposed idea you have, and you impose it on the text. It's it's a bad hermeneutical method. We want to use exegesis, where we start with the text and we're drawing out, we're pulling out truths from the text. You see, Schofield did the opposite. You see, science was starting to say that the earth was much older than we thought, so to try to accommodate the Schofield Bible interpreted hayah has become instead of was. This allowed for this indefinite amount of time to exist from before God's original creation in verse 1 and his recreating in verse 3, which he did in six days. This gap theory is also called the restitution hypothesis because it teaches that after billions of years of marred creation, God brought restitution and order to it. And and again, this entire generation was swept away by this teaching of this gap theory and took it as gospel truth because of the Schofield Bible which is really unfortunate because nowhere does the Bible support this idea that there was billions of years between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. Second, we have the day-age theory. So the gap theory, and now we're going to look at the day-age theory. This theory teaches that each day of creation was really an age or a period of time. But the day-age theory denies God's creation was completed in six literal 24-hour days. There's six days, but each day could be billions of years. It's an age. It's an eon, not a literal day. And and this could sound attractive, right? Because if you look at what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3.8, it says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. But with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. So I I could see where this could be kind of exciting and, you know, in in some people's mind, a, a, a just way to explain this. But if a day was like a thousand years, why wouldn't this be true of the creation narrative, people would ask? But this word day, uh, yom, is the Hebrew word for day, it's used over 2,200 times in the Old Testament. And over 1,900 of those times, it's speaking of a specific 24 hour day. It's not speaking of some indefinite period of time. There are a few instances where it speaks of uh, figuratively used, speaking of a, a period of time. For instance, in the New Testament, Jesus says it will be like the day of Noah. It's not spoken of as a literal 24-hour day. But uh, whenever there's a number before yom or uh, an article, it's always speaking of a 24-hour period. It's never spoken figuratively of an age or a period of time. The the day-age theory, it also misses the immediate context of the passage. Because in Genesis 1, we read over and over, uh, you know, God said, let there be light. And it was evening and morning. First day was evening and morning. Second day was evening and morning. Third day all throughout the narrative. Well, Well, if it was just ages, it would be this evening and morning. It really wouldn't make sense. The illustration wouldn't hold. True. So this day-age theory doesn't make a lot of sense. Further in Exodus chapter 20, uh, God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments. And God commands that the children of Israel keep the Sabbath day. He says, "For uh, because God created man and the earth in six days and he rested on the seventh. Well, so this illustration would be Completely meaningless if the days of creation were literal 24-hour periods. Right, will we celebrate, or the Jews celebrate this out, is it's one 24-hour period from 6 o'clock Friday night to 6 o'clock Saturday night, an evening and a morning, one day. Right, but if it was just indefinite periods of time, how would they know when and how to celebrate Shabbat? So this day-age theory is bogus too. Third, we have the framework hypothesis. This framework hypothesis denies the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. It says that God gave us an allegorical account of creation to teach us some principles about God, but he really didn't create the universe the way that it's portrayed in those verses. There's some problems here. Number one, we've already shown that these chapters give no indication that they should be interpreted as anything but historical narrative. They should be interpreted as historical accounts. For this reason, the framework hypothesis should be rejected. There's no reason to take these verses as anything but literal. So that takes us to the the fourth option, and that is is that God created the earth in six literal 24-hour days. This is the traditional view of the church. This is throughout church history, what most of the church has believed most of the time. And it's the account that best fits the biblical data. So you say, what about science? What about carbon dating and things like that? Why is there such a discrepancy in the age of the earth? I found this fascinating. In 1980, a volcano called Mount St. Helens exploded in the state of Washington sure some of you remember that or have heard of it. The interesting thing that we learned from Mount St. Helens is that these same stratifications in rocks that contain fossils, which produce datings of the billions of years old, were present just a handful of days after the volcano exploded. That this volcano eruption created the same effects that scientists said billions of years would have created in the earth. In other words, there's a perfectly explainable reason for science to come up with a really old date of the earth. It's called volcano eruptions and things like the flood. Natural disasters could easily account for the old dating of the earth. So we believe God created the earth in six literal 24-hour periods, he did it by speaking it into existence from his mouth out of absolutely nothing. Number four, God formed the universe, and it was very good in his sight. Fill in the word very good. Five times throughout this creation narrative in Genesis 1, God creates something, and he looks at what he created, and he declares that it was good. But on the sixth day, he creates man. He looks at man, and he says that it is Very good. It's not just good, it's very good. God's creation was perfect the way He made it. This should be any kind of dualism, which says that the physical is evil, but the spiritual is good. That's what the Gnostics said. That's what New Age is saying. You know, the physical world, physical matter, that's evil. It's the spiritual that we should live for. It's all about the spirit. But God looked at his material creation and he said it was good. Also, with uh, concerns to evolution, God's creation didn't need to evolve into something good. It was created and declared good from the Uh, get-go. Creation's actually getting worse. (laughs) It's devolving, not evolving. Biologist Edward Conklin wrote this. Uh, he wrote, not unfairly, the probability of life originating from accident is comparable to the probability of a dictionary resulting from an explosion in a printing works. For for this world just to evolve into the the way it is with the order and the structure and and all that it has, it would be like a a, a printing press going nuts, so you end up with Webster's Dictionary. (laughs) That's just not going to happen. What about the Bible, how it calls creation this present evil world? If God created it and said it was very good, how come? In the New Testament, we read that this present world is, is evil. Well, that's after sin and corruption entered the world. That brings about destruction and deterioration. Again, quite the opposite of evolution. Number five, God created for His glory. Fill in the word His. God's creation is is first and foremost for His glory. The Bible, er, the Creation displays his attributes. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. See, it's easy for us to have this man-centered idea of creation because we're the ones living in it. We're the ones who are given dominion of it. In a lot of ways, the creation serves us. It provides for us. It, it, it is there for our needs. But we need to remember we're not the primary benefactors of creation. That God is the benefactor of creation. Creation is for his glory. He made it for himself to display who he is. You know, we we tend to think of day six when God made man as the, the highlight of creation. Right? Man man is the, the pinnacle of God's creation. That's 100% true. But day six wasn't the highlight of that week of, of creation. It was day seven when God rested. That was the highlight of creation. Everything was finished, and now the attention gets directed back to God. In other words, creation is for God's glory. And he built a day into the week to remind us of this fact: that we exist for God's glory, to bring praise and honor and glory to God. The creation doesn't serve us; it serves God. So let it be. God create, created humans to be special. Turn the word "special." See, humans are special in God's created order because we're created in God's image, unlike anything else. Humans are. Special because we have been given authority over creation. Adam was given the charge of naming all the other animals in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis one twenty-eight it says, God blessed them. That's Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every little living thing that moves on the earth. So, Adam and Eve have dominion over the earth. They have a special privilege, a special role, a special calling in all of God's creation. For so number one, fill in uh, the words, crowning work. Man was the crowning work of creation. We see that, in that we were the last creative act of God in his creation. Everything else God says is good, but man is said to be very good. Every other aspect of creation gets a verse or two explaining how God created it. But at the end of chapter 1, after he creates man in his image, we get a whole chapter explaining just how God created man and the responsibilities he gave man and how he took out of one man a robe and created a hope for him, Eve, and how all that came to pass. So obviously, there's a lot more attention given to the creation of Adam and Eve in God's image than anything else in creation. And that's because we as human beings are the crowning work of creation. Number two, all of humanity has descended from one set of parents. From the word descended. God created Adam, and from Adam he created Eve. Right? Remember, God creates Adam. He has them name all the animals. He's given them that right. And then once he realizes that there isn't an animal suitable for him, there isn't a helpmate suitable for him in all the other creation, God puts him to sleep. God takes out his rib, and from his side, he creates a helpmate suitable for Adam. He creates Eve. And every human being that's ever existed comes from those two parents, comes from Adam and Eve. So in reality, there's only one race of humans, and that's the human race. We all have the same parents, so it makes no sense to be racist in any ways. Right? We're all brothers and sisters. In reality, we all come from the same parents. It would make no sense to be racist or, or hateful towards other humans. Point number three, man was made in the image of God. In the word image. I want to spend a little bit of time here. What does it mean to be in the image of God? Genesis one twenty seven says, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created, and male and female he created them. First off, I want to say this. There we have it. Male and female, he created them. Right? There's two genders. That's all we got. It's not the 58 that Facebook says we have. There's only two options you're male or you're female and and God created them. God decides whether you're male or female. God decides or defines what our gender is, not us, but we also see that there's real biological differences between male and female. Remember, I, I just said in, in Genesis 1, or Genesis 2.20, it says, The man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. Adam, or man, was created alone. And God saw that he needed help, so God creates a helpmate for him. He creates a woman. God saw that man couldn't live on his own. That man needed help. And so he created women. This tells us, first of all, that there's a difference between men and women. There's certain things that women could do that man can't do. Otherwise, Adam wouldn't have needed Eve. And vice versa. Men and women are meant to complement each other. That's why God tells man to leave his father and mother, and to find a wife, and for the two of them to become one flesh. They're made to, to complement each other. They're, they're both created in the image of God. They're equal in humanity. They're equally reveal the glory of God. They equally are gifted by God. It's not that one is better than the other. It's that they have separate or different roles that complement each other in this world. But this answers a lot of the gender issues that we're facing today. But what does it mean that God created man in his image? There's been a lot of suggestions to what this means, that we're created in the image of God. Some say it's that we have an immaterial self, that we have a, a spirit or soul and God is spirit, and so we're able to reflect God in that way. Some say it's because of our spirit that we're able to have communion or fellowship with God in a way that the rest of the animal kingdom can. Some say that it's due to the structure, the way that we're made, that our dichotomy or trichotomy is a reflection of the triune nature of God. Some say that we're God's image bearers because we have a mind that makes rational thought, a will that makes volitional decisions, and we have the ability to be creative, to create things, even the ability to bring new life, new image bearers of God through childbirth. I like what this one commentator said regarding the image of God. He said, we also believe what man was originally image of the in God, and that He was made to function as a prophet, a priest, and a king, as there God three persons in one essence, so in Adam's personality, there was endowed capacity for knowledge, holiness, and righteousness, as a prophet, man was endowed with the physical senses and mental ability to learn truth as a priest, he possesses the sensibility and desire to worship God. Into holiness, as the king who possess the physical and mental power and ability to subject in righteousness all things to the purpose of God. And the Godhead of his characteristically, the Father and purposes are attributed. The Son who dedicates all the worship and delight of the Father. And the Holy Spirit who carries into execution the determination of the divine being. In the complexity of human personality, we believe there is, and even more, in sinless man, there was a reflection of this. So, in our ability to reflect God in his righteousness, in his holiness, and his knowledge. We reflect the glory of God. Now, it's important to note that we maintain this image of God even after the fall. Even after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, they're still reflecting the image of God. They're still in the image of God. Now, it's, it's greatly marred by the sin nature. It's not as recognizable as it was before, but they're still in God's image. In, in, in fact, in, in Genesis 9, uh, after the flood, they get off of the ark, and, and God speaks to Noah. And he says this He says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood shall be shed. Or by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he created man. So, our being in the image of God is the basis for the institution of capital punishment. because of the sanctity of life that we're created in the image of God, that if you take a life, you forfeit yours, God said. Now, some people say that we Christians could be inconsistent in the fact that we're pro-death penalty, but we're also anti-abortion. But it's really that we're not inconsistent at all. You see, it's the sanctity of life that give us the belief in both of these things. We believe that life is so sacred that we're created in the image of God that if you kill that, and you take somebody else's life, the punishment is that you forfeit yours. And the same thing, the baby that's in the womb is in the image of God. And so to kill that is an attack on the image of God. It's an attack on God himself. In fact, I, I believe that's why uh, some of these people are so into abortion. It's because they hate God. They know, Satan knows that he can't kill God, but he knows that he can get people to kill his image bearers. And hopefully, even do it before they make it out into the earth and are able to be seen as image bearers. I'm going to do it in the womb. For Satan, that's as close as he could get to actually killing God. He loves abortion. He's promoting abortion. He's influencing people to get abortion. But we're against it because. Of the sanctity of life that that fetus is in the image of god you know jesus was the ultimate image bearer of god there was no one who bore the image of god the way that jesus did hebrews 1 3 says and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature he upholds all things by the word of his power when he had made purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's the exact representation of his nature. Colossians one fifteen. he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he's not the firstborn in that he was born from God. He, he's the, the firstborn in that he's going to be the, the, the first one to rise from the dead and to bring other people into the full image of God. When we look at Jesus, we see God. He's the perfect image of who God is. And we're created in God's image, but we fell. Now that image is marred by sin, and it's a whole lot less distinguishable. But when we're baptized into Christ, that image of God starts to be restored in us day by day by day. We become more and more into the image of God. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 18, he says, But we are with unveiled face, it as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That's what sanctification is. That's when Paul says in Romans 12, that we need to have our minds renewed by the, the word of God, and it's going to transform us. It's going to metamorphosize us into the image of Christ day by day. But if we're not having our minds transformed by God's word, we're going to naturally just be conformed to this world. We're going to naturally lose that ability to bear God's image. So this idea of being an image bearer of God is something that we should be growing in. It's something that we should be seeing more and more of ourselves and of each other. One day the rapture is going to happen. And at the rapture, we're going to be transformed. We're going to be translated into the exact image of Christ. We're going to be just like Christ. We're going to be in full glory, the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking all about the resurrection. Remember, the Corinth was the carnal church. They had all kinds of problems. They were divided about everything. They were even divided about the resurrection. Some of the people said, hey, you know what? Uh, yeah, Christ rose from the dead, but we're not going to rise from the dead. Might as well eat, drink, and be merry, right? And remember, (laughs) Paul says, if we're not going to rise from the dead, our faith is in vain, right? And and having that uh, approach to the resurrection caused them to have bad behavior. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15, giving this whole theology of the resurrection. So we get the most in-depth, theology of the resurrection from the Apostle Paul. But he says this in verses 39 through 49. He says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and there's another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There's also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun." and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown in a perishable body, but it's raised in an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body, it's raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also is it as written. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also it or bear the image of the heavenly. At the rapture, we're going to be in the exact image of Jesus. That's what John says in 1 John 3, verses 2 through 3. He says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So so we know that we could be transformed from one degree of glory to the next in this life, that our ultimate destination is is to be into the image of of Christ, and that's going to be at the rapture. And so our our mission, our goal, should be to get as close to that as we can here on earth. That's why Paul says, I I forget the things that that lie behind, and I I press forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God made it his life's ambition to be as much like Jesus, to be as much of the representation of Jesus as he could be here on earth, and that should be our goal as well. But one more thing I, I want to highlight here, uh, speaking about uh, being an image bearer that I, I thought was interesting. This idea of image bearing also speaks to our jobs in, in subduing the earth. In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful. Multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in this text, being an image-bearer of God is directly tied to the commission that he gives to rule over the earth. We're able to rule over the earth because we are image-bearers of God. You know, God put his image on us, and he left us to rule and reign for him in his place. In the ancient world, if a ruler wasn't going to be in a territory of his, he would have a uh, uh, he would set up an image in that territory, so that whoever walked by or came into that territory would know who's in charge, who's ruling over it, uh, whose, whose territory it is. And that's essentially what God's done with us. He's left us on this earth to reflect him, to be his image bearer. And the more that we reflect that image, the greater we're going to have the effect that he wants us to have in being the salt and light on this earth and making the difference he wants us to make uh, on this earth. The more that there's going to be righteousness happening around us, the more that the earth is going to be treated the way that God wants it to be treated, and all of that. He's left us as his vice-regents here to represent him in this subduing the earth, reversing the effects of the curse. This is what being a king and a priest of the Lord is all about. before four, fill the word furnished. God furnished Adam with sufficient knowledge of his will. You know, Adam was given everything he needed. God gave him a conscience that told him what was right and wrong. He doed him with that power. But he also gave him special revelation. He, he told him exactly what his will for him was. Right, They to told the garden, you could eat of everything. Just do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good evil." That's what God's will for him was. Basically, do whatever you want. Just don't eat from this one tree. God had told them what he needed. And that's true today. It's not a matter of people not having enough revelation from God to know what his will is for them. It's a matter of people responding to his will in the way that exhibits faith. That he has spoken. And that he has a will for them to begin with. You see, people know the will of God. They, they know what God wants from them. They know, you know, what, what God's calling them to do. But the Bible says they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. So it's evident within them. And God made it evident to them, the internal and the external witness, same as Adam. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they're without excuse. For even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of the birds and of the four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now they choose the, the creature over the creator. It chose their will over His will. So, what does God do? If you keep reading Romans one, He simply gives them more of what they want—more sin, more life apart from God. You know, God—if you think about it—really just gives everybody what they want. The people that don't want Him, the people that want to glory in unrighteousness, He just gives them the ability for more unrighteousness, for more life without Him life away from him and the consequences there But the people that truly want to know him and be close to him, he brings them closer and transforms them from one degree of glory to the next. He's he's not unjust with anybody. In actuality, he's really giving everybody exactly what they want. But they can't say they didn't know. No one's ever going to be able to say, There's ample revelation because of the conscience, the creation, and God's direct will. Point number five, last one. Adam was capable of due obedience, but also of failing. This is important. God put Adam in the garden, and he gave him a mutable footing. What that means is he had the ability to change. God is immutable. You put Adam and Eve on mutable footing. That means that their ground was able to be changed, and that was through disobedience. As long as they obeyed, they were going to stay where they were. But if they disobeyed, things were going to change. Their, their nature was going to change. It was going to go from being perfect to being corrupted with sin. They were going to go from being in perfect fellowship with God to being out of fellowship with God, from being imperatives to being in a world that's cursed because of this beautiful ground. But they had everything they needed to succeed or to fail. It was it was really up to them. God made them capable of obeying and disobeying. See, God gave Adam and Eve a choice. Do I obey God or do I disobey? We all know what they chose. We're all dealing with the consequences of their choice, right? But Adam was capable of making the right choice. He was truly free. And he's a little bit different than us in that regard. Yeah, we get to make free, volitional decisions. That, that That's true, just like Adam. We get to choose righteousness or unrighteousness. But he was different because his will wasn't in bondage to sin like ours. Because of his fall, we all progenerate from Adam are left with a sinful nature. We, we get a corrupted nature. We, we have a nature that, on, on its own, can't fully choose to be obedient. That's what original sin did to us. We're like Paul in Romans 7. That's a believer. Paul, at the end of his life, is writing to the Romans. And in Romans 7, he says, The very things that I want to do, I don't do. And the very things I don't want to do, I do. But it's not I who do them. It's this sin inside of me. Who's going to deliver me from this body of sin and death? I think God for my Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Because of this bondage, this sin nature that we have, we're unable to truly choose to do righteous like Adam had that choice. But there's a day coming when we will be delivered. The Lord will return, and we're going to be changed, and we're going to be fully in his likeness. And for the first time, we'll fully be able to choose not to sin. We won't have a sin nature. We won't have any type of uh, corruption in us that is going to make us to sin. But Adam and Eve fully had that choice. And in the perfect environment, in perfect bodies, they still chose sin over righteousness. Uh, God, I, I thank you for this word. I, I thank you that uh, that you created us. You've given us the, the task, the responsibility of being your co-regents here on earth and to rule and reign and to represent you. You put your image on us, Lord. Help us to do that faithfully. Help us to look forward to the time when you're returning and we're going to be complete. We're going to be fully in your image that we'll be delivered from this bondage to sin and hell and death, Lord. I pray you'd give us a boldness to be able to speak truth about your creation, about your world, the origin of it, the implications of that to our culture. I pray that we'd speak in truth and love, heart full of compassion for the lost, Lord, and that you would bring people to yourself through that. I thank you again that, that we're here, that we have this freedom, that we have your word that we could worship you. I pray that you bless this time of worship. I thank you for Kaylee. Thank you that she's here. And uh, I pray that you just uh, receive our worship and that this glorifies you. In Jesus' name we pray.